my son, my son and daughter are siblings. They have the same mother. They have different fathers. My son's father is Mexican and my son is Mexican. Um, and what a journey it was to realize that to love someone or to see inequities in the world or to believe that, you know, we can fight for equity, but to actually see someone go through a lived experience that's so dramatically different than your own. Um, and to realize the difference between um, witnessing someone's lived experience and fully understanding that lived experience or claiming that lived experience that being the mother of a Hispanic child is not the same thing as the lived experience of my Hispanic child. Hello, my friends. I'm your host, Victor Rampadrat. Welcome to the show where we share the lived experiences of ordinary people just like you. We're amplifying your voice to provide a different perspective on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Our goal is simple. Humanize DEI so we can move closer to a culture of belonging and respect. Our next guest has a huge heart for helping people. She was the co-chair for her community's first ever Pride event and also an adoptive parent of two children from the foster care system. After years of having cats, she finally said yes to a dog who changed her life. The founder of a local nonprofit, she epitomizes what it means to be a community leader. Melanie Ryan walked away from a senior role with one of the big tech giants in Washington state to focus on helping people through her DEI practice, MFR coaching and consulting. Melanie, thank you so much for being here and welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So as we normally like to do, we like to really dive into sort of where things begin. And for you as a child growing up in the United States, tell me a little bit about what that experience was like for you going through sort of growing up in New York State and then Ohio. And I think you moved around a bit. So maybe share that with our audience. Yeah. I wouldn't say there's anything spectacular about my childhood. I would say that when you look at, you know, um, what a stereotypical experiences in the United States, we were that family for the most part. Um, you know, every family has its story, every family has its strengths, every family has its weaknesses. Um, but for the most part, you know, we were that stereotypical family, a little bit on the lower economic end, but not so much that I felt poverty or would it, it truly understand that until maybe I was a teenager. Um, I definitely, in my earlier years, um, I, I, I went to schools that had a lot of diversity. Um, but as I moved from New York and as I moved into Ohio and I moved to Washington State, less so. And so my experience was very much shaped by families that looked like me, um, with value systems that looked like me, um, with faith systems that looked like me. But I didn't know any different, right? I didn't know, understand anything different at the time, um, except for when we first moved to Washington State. I had a moment, I was 12, where I realized um, there's large Native American communities, indigenous communities here. And where I had lived previously, there weren't. And I remember noticing that. Right. 
And I remember noticing I noticed that. And I didn't understand what to do with all of that information, but it was one of those moments. But for the most part, you know, it was just, um, you know, a mom and dad, my mom stayed home. I had, you know, I was the oldest of four. Um, and it was, it was average. It was average. <laughs> That's, you know, and it's, it's great that, because we have everyone who has different experiences and just realizing that there are people who have that stereotypical sort of upbringing and, and, and it's important because it recognizes where everyone's starting point is. Mm -hmm. Now I find it really interesting that, as you said, you, you got to Washington state and you started to notice that there were people here that were different than you and you weren't sure how to process that. At what point did you eventually sort of start processing that? And how did you sort of, lean into this new culture, if at all, that you sort of were experiencing around you? I don't know that there was a moment. I think that there has been a continuum my whole life. I think one thing is I was inherently born, like I don't take credit for this, I don't know why, with some sort of sense of fairness and justice in the world. And I was inherently born with this kind of innate sense of curiosity, which has always been good and sometimes has got me into trouble. So I think that there have been experiences where that those two things together have allowed me to go on this journey where I've added a little bit more understanding and a little bit more knowledge. And then I've been able to use that with a sense of fairness and justice to be able to say, well, wait a minute, what can I do to change things or make things better? And I didn't for a very, very long time, I didn't have the words that I do now um, to explain this or understand this or understand what being an ally looks like or understood what equity meant or any of those things. I also had an enormous amount of privilege and I had an enormous amount of things I didn't understand and didn't see, you know, through that. But there were always these experiences. So to your point, when, you know, some of what you talked about in the intro, when I was in college, I had this opportunity to go to Mendenhall, Mississippi you know, in the South, in the United States, it was 1980. Um, it was either 1990 or 91, somewhere around there, quite a while ago, I was 19, 20 years old. And there was literally railroad tracks. And there were white people on one side, there were black people on the other side, there were still signs and windows that said black people couldn't come in or eat there. It was against the law, but it didn't matter because there was still an active Ku Klux Klan and people in law enforcement. And I remember I met, we met the pharmacists, you know, were active and the mayor were all in the Ku Klux Klan. And I was, it, it was a moment, it was a huge moment where I realized that the racism that we understood to be slavery in textbooks still existed in some form today, right? And so that's what happened. It was these continuum of moments that were building blocks that allowed me to continue to say this kind of stereotypical, average, normal, very white-centered view of the world was constantly kind of 
changing and morphing with this combination of curiosity and sense of fairness and justice. I'm almost speechless because, you know, when I, when I asked you to be on the show, I knew that you had a different perspective that people needed to hear. And I'm just thankful that you're willing to speak so openly because for many people, they read things in a book or a textbook, but they really never let those words or experiences jump off the page. And I almost feel like we're allowing people to get an insight into what it was like walking into a train station and seeing the dichotomy of people and trying to process that information and those building blocks, like you mentioned, how that creates a lens on the world that allows you to see things differently than maybe some other people are not willing to admit or see because they themselves have not had that lived experience. So thank you for sharing so openly. You know, I think that one of the greatest things that anyone can really do is to adopt a child, someone that is is of not their own. And I'm so grateful that you're willing to open up about this experience. What inspired you to, to adopt in the first place? <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not probably a hallmark story, but um, so in this kind of continuum of learning, you know, I had gone to school, I graduated with a finance degree. I was doing finance, but I just felt that there was something disconnected between where my values were and what I was doing as a career. So I decided to go back and get a master's of social work. And in my master's of social work, I really focused on education and kids. And I had two practicums. And my second practicum was as a a educational advocate for foster children, which was, by the way, the most phenomenal job, one of the most phenomenal jobs I've ever had. And at the very beginning of that practicum, at the beginning of the year, these kids came on to my caseload and they had been in foster care. They had gone back to mom and they'd been back with mom for a while. And it was the third week of school, end of the third week of school, mom hadn't put them back in school. And so it was my first case. So like I read the file backwards and forwards and left and right, contacted mom, mom denied. She didn't want our services. So it was like, Okay, there wasn't much I could do. You know, fast forward to the end of the year, and my husband and I were really ambivalent about having our own children, but we had a new house that we had built that had two bedrooms that were never used, the door was always shut, and we'd really seen the need in foster care for foster parents. And so we said, well, we could foster because they're not permanently going to be ours. And so, you know, we could just do that for a while. And, um, and so the, we went and we were in the process of doing that. And these kids that were on my caseload at the beginning came back on my caseload at the end. They were going back into foster care again. The educational year had been somewhat of a disaster for them. We had our offices in the same offices as the Department of Children and Family Services. And the and the social worker was in the office working. I could hear her and she was trying to find a home for them to place them. The five-year-olds, there were two brothers who were teenagers. No one wants teenage boys. So she was having a very hard time placing them. And I said, well, we can take them. She popped, I popped my head over her key and I said, we can take them. I mean, I knew, I knew about them. I'd read their file. 
And that was that. And that was the beginning of, of that story. But it was just, it wasn't like, oh, we want to go save the world. Or it wasn't, it was just, it was very practical. It was like, eh, we're not sure we want to have children. Eh, we've got room in our house. You know, there's a need. Let's do it. It was just this very practical decision. <laughs> but serendipitously, it's it's changed your life, has oh. it not? Yeah. I mean, you couldn't have a more transformative decision than what we made that we thought was very practical. In fact, when we did our foster classes, the instructor said, who's doing foster to adopt and who's doing foster? And we just raised our hand saying, we're just foster. And she said, I'm warning those of you who are doing foster that all big people fall in love with little people and almost all of you will adopt. And my husband and I laughed out loud. We went, Pfft. And she looked at us and she goes, you'll be the first. <laughs> and and were you the first? Uh, well, pretty much the kids I told you about. Yep. Within weeks of coming to our house, the social worker said they're not coming home. They're not going home this time. They don't have family who can adopt them. Can we can can you be a long term placement for them? Will we try to find an adoptive family. And we said, what are you talking about? We are their adoptive family. So it took weeks. It took weeks. It took weeks. And, That's and, and you know, one of the things that you shared with me um, in private, because we had a conversation as uh, everyone knows as listeners that I'm also the CEO of Discourse, which is a diversity, equity, inclusion startup as well. And through the sort of course of meeting people in this field to better acclimate myself with sort of the stakeholders, I came across Melanie and we shared a, uh, a very intimate conversation around sort of my upbringing, her upbringing and, and kind of where our passions lie for this work. And it's why I knew that her heart was in the right place and why I needed to have her story told. She had an opportunity to see life through a different perspective. And I would like you to share with our listeners sort of, you know, what that was like as you started to realize the hard stuff that comes along with the adoption process, especially when you are adopting someone who is not of your ethnicity or race. Mm -hmm. I so appreciate this question, Victor. I just can't tell you how much I appreciate it because everybody loves the shiny story. Everyone loves the, oh, you know, you save these kids from this lifetime of pain. And that's not the story of adoption. Um, there's a lot of beauty in our story and there's a lot of really hard stuff. And um, Glennon Doyle call, says brutal, you know, it, life is brutal and it's beautiful and really ad adoption and particularly adoption with kids who have trauma and kids who, you know, you are developing a mixed race family. I mean, all of these type of things, it's brutal. That is what it is. It's brutal. And so one, there it was this journey through trauma. There was definitely a journey, you know, when we talk about those moments, uh, those, those, those building blocks, that spectrum of this journey of, of understanding diversity, equity, and inclusion. My son, my son and his daughter are siblings. They have the same mother. They have different fathers. My son's father is Mexican and my son is Mexican. And what a journey it was to realize 
that to love someone or to see inequities in the world or to believe that, you know, we can fight for equity, but to actually see someone go through a lived experience that's so dramatically different than your own. And to realize the difference between witnessing someone's lived experience and fully understanding that lived experience or claiming that lived experience that being the mother of a Hispanic child is not the same thing as the lived experience of my Hispanic child. So I can give witness to the fact that when we would go into the a store, my Hispanic child would get profiled nearly every time and followed and so on and so forth. I can give witness to that. And I can give witness that that did not happen with my blonde hair, blue eyed daughter, even though my blonde hair, blue eyed daughter was the one that had significantly more issues and probably should have been followed around the store. So I can give witness to that. I can say that is real, but I will never know what it's like to go in a store. And I think that's a huge mistake people make in when they feel like they understand something you have to be super careful, whether it's race or whatever it may be, you have to be really careful. And so there was so much learning with that with my kids, you know, with my son being Hispanic or being Mexican, you know, and it was over and over and over, Victor. I remember we, he had asthma, very, very bad. And he was a, a an older teenager at this point, And he's like, I'm uh, in the hospital. I had a very bad asthma attack and I don't remember how I got there, but so I'm, I'm rushing home from work to go meet him in the hospital. And the doctor, first of all, it immediately turned the channel to a Spanish speaking channel. My son doesn't speak Spanish. I can't, I probably speak better Spanish than him and I don't speak Spanish very well. And then the doctor talked to him like this. And finally, my son just looks at him and he said, I was born in Denver. (laughs) You know, and it's just over and over and over again. And it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking for humanity. It was heartbreaking as a mom. And it's probably one of the single most powerful things that has helped me do this work as a white woman effectively in so many ways to know where my line is and where my lane is. And, and we spoke about that in our private conversation and that's, it's, it's truly powerful because when you can understand not claim to be your own, like you mm-hmm. mentioned, but to understand it in a visceral, impactful manner, because that is your child. Yes. That is your loved one, but yet their experience is so different because they do not bear the same skin color or privilege that one might have. And uh, the hospital experience brings up something emotionally for me because I recently had a very similar experience. I've had two experiences where level of service were not where they needed to be for the very reason that I was of a darker skin tone. And to hear other people validate that 
because they've had the opportunity to witness it, I think is, is very powerful. Are there any other instances where you felt, you know, this is some of the hard stuff you talked about trauma Mm -hmm. and uh, I don't think people give enough credit to the traumas that people of color have to experience over and over and over again. Yet we talk about sort of an isolated incident, but not everything that's happened up until that point. We never ask why did that thing play out the way it did? Is there any context you can give to how trauma might sort of shape someone's view on the world or how they exhibit and how you've maybe helped to overcome some of that? Oh, wow. That that's like a podcast series. Um, yes. (laughs) Um, so raising two kids with significant trauma, um, you know, given that they had come out of a situation that had a, a lot of abuse, uh, significant mental health, um, issues, um, you know, violence, um, drug abuse, a lot of trauma for both these kids. And then of course the trauma didn't, there's, it's like, it's a Venn diagram, right? There's a center of kind of, I think, commonality with people who have trauma. And then there's kind of, you know, where someone's trauma meets who they are as a person. And then where it intersects with other things, like to the point of, when you have traumas that come with just having the racial identity and and certainly in the United States, how race um, has has hundreds of years of history of trauma with that. And so then you have kind of compounding traumas and so on and so forth. So yes, so trauma in both my kids has impacted every part of who they are. And it, and, and then, and, I'll give you an example. It, it's not intersecting so much with race like you talk about with my son, but um, with my daughter, I remember she was in middle school and the um, the teacher gave a test and at the top of the test, it said in big, bold letters, do not write on this test. They got little Scantron bubble things, you know, and he ran out of the Scantron. So like the last two or three kids, he just said, write on your test. And my daughter's like, I can't. And he's like, yeah, 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 go ahead. Just go ahead. I'm telling you, can't she goes, I can't. It says up here, do not write. Now, one of the things around trauma, and both my kids did this, is they had this anxiety-driven need to control certain things because their environment had been so out of control. And so, and they can see the world in very stark black and white terms. Gray sometimes is very hard for them. And so this kept going. And my daughter's anxiety kept going like this and this and this. And the teacher was getting angry and angry and angry and in and, and accused her of being defiant and insubordinate and disrespectful. And I had to go in there and I had to say, you, you know, here's what's happening. Here's the trauma response that you're getting. Like, she feels like there was order. This was what she was supposed to do. And she, you know, didn't know how to do it. And, you know, and first of all, like, is a kid really being having a defiant, you know, insubordinate moment about trying to follow directions? Like, let's use a little common sense. Um, so trauma disrupts, the, you know, your physical systems, your, you know, your emotional and mental health systems. And, and both my kids, like, 
And that has been life-changing because it has allowed me to be able to have an empathy I don't think I would ever have. Like when people act or respond a certain way to be able to say behavior has reasons and it doesn't always excuse or make behavior not or make behavior okay and it doesn't mean we don't have boundaries but be curious about why why is this behavior presenting itself what is the reason for this because if you can understand that you know we can move out of so much of the division that we create in our world we can do that and 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 trauma exists so much more than we think it does. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that, you know, when it comes to trauma and I've had many of my own growing up in some of the communities I've grown up in and some of my own lived experiences, but everyone always looks at sort of the result, but never asking why we got to that place. And I think that, you know, it does allow for that element of empathy and compassion for other people when you have the ability to maybe question some of the backstory or look for context around what might be happening, which I think is beautiful. You know, as a parent, I'm a parent myself and I've got a little three-year-old girl and uh, she really, I've never really understood love to the capacity at which Mm -hmm. I have been able to in being a parent. And what did it do for you as you started to have to realize sort of what it was like in an empathetic way with how your children had to live in the skin that they were in and some of the things that they were dealing with in society. What did that do for you as a parent? How did that make you feel? Everything, (laughs) you know, everything. Um, The, first of all, there's a fierce sense of protectiveness, right? Like now that you have a daughter, I'm, I'll be curious to see if you have felt this too. Like, there's something that that I had never experienced before that I experienced to this day. My son is 29 and my daughter will be 21 in October now. And um, there's this level of protectiveness. And I, and I think there was an added level of protectiveness that there were these vulnerabilities that maybe didn't exist with the average child. I didn't know possible. Like I love people. I love my parents. I love my siblings. I love my, my husband, but there is this level of, if there is any reason I am here on this earth, it is for these people, these two little people, maybe not so little bit people. And, um, and so there's this, I, I think that's, that's the other thing, meaning like that, that everything that I believe that all of my values, like those children are embedded in that. And it's, and it is just this meaning for my life and this fierce protectiveness of them and who they are and their journey. And then of course, there's also levels of guilt that I don't think I ever knew that I could experience, you know, and I don't spend a lot of time in guilt. I rarely spend time in guilt, but when I've had guilt, it is always with my children. And I think the best thing or best way I can see that is having these children, being a parent, being a mom to these children is the most visceral human experience I've ever had. 
That's a big statement. It's a big job. <laughs> that it is. And uh, going back to what you said about my daughter, it, it totally protection. I'm responsible for her. Mm-hmm. You know, especially at three years old where she cannot do for herself. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a level of responsibility that I've never felt. And with that responsibility comes the responsibility of protection because she cannot do for herself. And I often look at, uh, I love things like the National Geographic and you see sort of these animals as they have their young, Mm -hmm. how they protect them. And then, you know, I've always said that my goal is to give her the tools to be successful because as she goes onto the road herself, it's going to be her responsibility, right? And I actually have something where I say, you know, it's it's it's. They say it's not our job to prepare the child for the road, but the oh, sorry, it's, it's not our job to prepare the road for the child, but the child for the road. Mm-hmm. And my goal with this course is to do both: is mm-hmm. to not only prepare her as that is my fatherly duty and my responsibility to her as a parent, but at the same time, if I can't do something to fix the societal constructs that sort of marginalize people of color or women, uh, because we talk about gender equality, there's so many aspects to this work that, um, you know, I feel like I would have failed in some respects as a parent, right? So it's now doing my part to, to build equitable systems, um, that allow for anyone, regardless that, you know, not someone's getting a hundred meter, we're, the Olympics are going on right now, but a hundred meter head start just because of the way they were born. But we have equitable systems that give everyone sort of that even playing field that, you know, if you've got the grit and determination, because those things all matter, um, that you can actually make something yourself in this country. So yeah, beautiful, beautiful share. Thank you. We talk about my son, but my daughter is identifies within the LGBTQ community. She doesn't okay. she doesn't quite know how which letter she chooses yet. So I'll just say the LGBTQ community. So, you know, I have two kids who, you know, as you look at societal norms are sitting on the margins. Um, and again, so when we talk about this this place that I grew up in where I sat solidly in the middle of, you know, what was the norm, you know, with, with some, you know, experience of being a girl and a woman, certainly I have felt and have had experiences around that and that have been very inequitable. Um, But tons of privilege being white, tons of privilege, you know, you know, socioeconomically, I mean, we're not rich, but, you know, certainly just fine and comfortable. So I have two kids who are sitting on these margins that, you know, and so as a mom, you know, or a dad, as you already feel these, you know, sense of protection or sense of responsibility, I think that's what I heard you say. And what I'm saying to this responsibility, you have like, I felt, and when I look at the intro that you gave and I look at the discussion we've had, like we've talked about this responsibility. Like I believe that, you know, I have a responsibility for my time here on earth and, and, and what that looks like. And then having children just put that on steroids and elevated that, that my responsibility is not just to, um, to them, individually but to give to work 
to create this world so that both they and everyone else can live in 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 a space that they can be and bring who their whole selves are and be safe. And it's um, I think parenting just gives you. And when I say burden, I don't mean that badly. It's a beautiful burden to carry. But yeah, it's life changing. It's transformative. It totally is. And you talked about sort of this responsibility. And I talked about responsibility. I love the fact that we are talking about responsibility because I think that, you know, when we talk about DEI, I tell people that the responsibility doesn't just land on a um, diversity head or, 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 you know, the C-suite. It lands really on everyone in the organization because mm. it is everyone's responsibility to create those inclusive environments. But you walked away from a really good corporate job with a really large name most people would clamor to be a part of that organization and you yet in a senior role says, sayonara, I'm out of here. Here's my badge. Here's my laptop. I'm going to go do this thing. Like what aspect of the responsibility to living your life in a true and meaningful way did that play a part in? And what part did your lens around your adoptive children who are your children play into sort of that lens of building these equitable systems that you're out there trying to like, you know, equity is a big thing for you. Yeah. Um, I did. Um, I, I, I joke a lot that here we are in the middle of pandemic and I left my cushy, very well-paying job. I had been doing this work in multiple different ways um, for a long time, even if it wasn't the core part of the job that I did um previously. Um, I was doing it as other parts as an executive sponsor and so on and so forth uh, for DE&I. But to your point, you know, ultimately, you know, there was nothing wrong with my job and what I was doing. And I was actually working in a particular um, industry of ed tech where I did find some synergies about what my values were around um, kind of uh, um, addressing uh, the worth and value of human beings and really looking to empower people. But ultimately, what I had to look at is that, you know, I turned 50 this summer and I had to look at, you know, I'm on the back third, back half of my career. We'll see. We'll see how long I go. And, um, and so when I look at what those values are, when I look about kind of you know, the way I view the world and what I believe in terms of, you know, our job here on this earth is one, to leave it in a better place than when we came and two is to serve each other, you know, was where I was at and what I was doing, where I could make the most impact relative to those values. And the answer was no. So it wasn't like, oh, this is horrible and awful and even bad. It was that I have limited time to be able to serve others and to leave this world better than when I started. And so where, where can I do that? How can I use my strengths, my talents, my resources to meet those objectives? And, and that's where it led to where I am now. Um, and I have no regrets, none. And that's why I needed to, because we align so much on that one piece of just sort of You've got so many things that you've accomplished in life, but really, what does it all mean? Mm -hmm. 
right? And how are you utilizing the time that you're on this planet? Because it's, I mean, I tell people all the time, there's two things I can guarantee. You'll die and you'll pay taxes, <laughs> right? And other than that, there's no other real guarantee. So how are you utilizing that time in such a way that allows for you to leave this world better? And, and I think that the work that you're doing is really in service to humanity and really trying to ensure that you are playing your part in this very real conversation around DNI. And I'm very selective of who I bring on the show with respect to this industry because it's it's become muddled in the last little bit over uh, a lot of people striving to get in as what I call the DEI gold rush. But you're someone who, like you said, has played a significant role in an organization who, might I add, has had huge success in, in terms of DNI, and it's been a focus for them for quite some time. Um, which I always look to your CEO for sort of the thoughts mm -hmm. that he has as mm -hmm. well, because he really drives home mm -hmm. the conversation because he himself is of a marginalized ethnic background, yes. right? Yes. So yes. Uh, I think I think it's very beautiful, uh, the work that you are doing. Tell me about this Pride Parade. So your community has never mm -hmm. had a Pride event. You become the co-chair. So what was that experience like? Because I when I saw that, I thought it was because Toronto is like, Global pride. You come to Toronto for pride. And, you know, we even have in our own community, uh, some of the folks here at Discourse are responsible for our pride and mm -hmm. really ingrained. And we actually were, the, I think, one of the first services, police services to ever wrap a vehicle with pride logo, like our logos and pride mm -hmm. year round, just not just for one month. Year round, we have a pride vehicle and things that I'm very proud to have played a part in and being a part of those conversations as we start to build those inclusive communities. But you're championing that in your town. Mm -hmm. So tell me about that experience and what that was like for you. So start at the end and go back a little bit. So <laughs> okay. um, at the end of the event, the events wrapping up, vendors are starting to just take some stuff down. The music's still playing though. And there were two kids, maybe 13 of the most, maybe 12, maybe 13, maybe 14 and looked really young, but probably around 13. And they're dressed a little bit alternatively. Um, and you can tell looking at them, they don't probably fit into the norm at school. And in that moment, they are just dancing as if no one is watching and they are so free. And one's holding this flag and he's doing this. And you have to understand that leading up to this event, I can't tell you, I mean, countless emails and phone calls and people stopping any one of us that knew were involved in planning this event saying, thank you. I never saw, I, I never thought I would see this here, you know, I, I was afraid to put my pride flag up, but when I knew this event was here, I put my flag up. Um, during the event, we had a teenager who said, um, my parents don't know I'm here, but thank you. And and I, I have a little money and I was able to buy my flag. And so I saw these kids and, you know, finally I'm kind of out of, you know, day of event mode. And I just stood there and I wept and, you know, without even thinking in my head was, we're going to keep you safe, kiddos. This, this world's going to be okay for you. We're going to keep you safe. And, um, the, we're a town of about 18,000 people. We're Northeast of Seattle. So we're not, I'm not right in Seattle. 
we've traditionally been a very, very conservative town. We, it's changing. It's becoming less conservative, but still has a significant amount. We didn't know how this event would be received. It was born out of um, our equity council. We have an equity council of which I'm on the board. And um, we conceived of it in three months. And we get close to the event and it is in the middle of a record heat wave. And it's going to be well north of 100. And one thing you need to know about our area is, one, it never gets that hot. And two, when it does, of all major metropolitan regions in the United States, um, we are the least air conditioned. Less than 50% of homes and businesses have air conditioning. So we're not prepared for it. And it turns out that it's almost 108 that day. It's a record. And so then we're like, no one's going to come. I mean, you know, we don't know how it's going to show anyways. We've never done this before. 700 people came. 700 people came um, on the hottest day of the year. So imagine what it would have been if it hadn't been that hot. Right. And it was this amazing success. And I still, and I, and I said, this may be one of the most important things I've ever done in my life because the number of people who said, I feel seen, I feel safe. Um, it was amazing. I think that's, that's probably one of the most beautiful stories I've heard in a while, because I remember my first interaction with the LGBTQ plus community and it was I didn't understand it. I wasn't grown to understand that community. Um, and when I heard the stories, we have an organization called P flag mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have a representation here. And I was sitting on an executive committee with some of the folks and I would hear sort of the psychological safety issues that they would deal with. And just hearing that young woman saying, thank you. I feel seen. And, uh, it's just beautiful that you would take the time out of your day, out of your schedule, out of everything else that you have going on in life to put on an event that allows for these kids to feel included and seen and respected. Kudos to you. Kudos to you. I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that we were a team of 13 people um, who were amazing, beautiful, wonderful people. So I, I do want to acknowledge there was an amazing team that helped put this on. So And it always takes a village, right? I mean, I think that as, as people sort of move through these conversations that we've embarked on here today, to know that in any respect, it's, it's yes, we've played our part. You've played your part in, in everything that you've done with your adoptive family to um, the uh, pride community, as well as, you know, if we have a little bit of time, we could talk a little bit about uh, Becky's house, but it, it's allowed us to play our part, but it's not just us. Mm-hmm. It's the the support systems that are in place, the people that are with the adoption facility, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. individual that walked you and your husband through that those first couple meetings to mm-hmm. kind of get you started on your feet. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is the beauty of wanting to take the journey, but having the right support systems in place to allow you to be able to embark confidently and have resources to turn to. And that's kind of some of the work that we're doing is to try to provide that 
for people. And I think that that's the same for what you're trying to do with your organization as well, which is beautiful. So tell me about this charity. I mean, you're a cat person, <laughs> you get a dog and the dog changes your life and then you go set up a non-for-profit. Like what happened there? What's the story behind that? Yeah. So it's, it's Beck's place. Beck's place. And what had happened is in around 2015. So this was, this was kind of the start of my journey of, you know, really trying to figure out, what I was doing in corporate America and where did I want to go with my life on the back end. So I hadn't, this was, if you think about it, it was kind of in this full transition to where I am today. And so I always knew I wanted to take this master's of social work and use it in a way that was, that was more direct rather than indirect in the way that I was using it. And, um, and so, yes, so I've been this cat person and my husband forever and ever and ever wanted a dog, wanted a dog. He grew up with dogs and I was always like, I don't want a dog. I don't want a dog. I didn't grow up with animals. So speaking of growing up and that um, I had gotten the cats at one point in my life and um, an old boyfriend, old boyfriend. So see, boy, old boyfriends, old relationships are good for something. This one gave me cats. And so one year I joked, I I gave my husband a poem about the potential of getting a dog one day. And that was this Christmas present with some dog stuff. And then I kind of locked myself in because that wasn't very nice. So long story short, we get a dog and then this dog changes my life. And I'm like, how how do people live without dogs? I do not understand this concept of non-dog people. And so... And so as I was going through this journey of trying to decide what am I doing, I realized the business part of me realized that there was this gap in services, that that there was this, there was lots of people who really wanted access to services and wanted to be able to move into places of more stability, but there was a barrier because of their pet, that the services they needed wouldn't be provided unless they gave up their pet. And so I was like, this is perfect. Like I have this huge passion for humans. I have this huge passion for pets and I have a lot of business acumen. And so we created Beck's Place to remove those pet related barriers so that humans could get access to those services and not give up their pet. And the core of what we do, the heart of what we do is our foster boarding program where we'll temporarily care for the pet while the human gets their services. About 44% of our humans um, need housing or shelter services temporarily, can't bring their pet. Um, And then the next two most common are they're getting services for substance abuse um, and then um, domestic violence um, situations um, where they need to get to safety. Um, and then also they may have a medical hospitalization or a legal issue um, or some of the other ones that round it out. So it's really cool. It's beautiful. And, you know, as, as you're speaking and ever since I've met you and I'm learning more about you is the fact that I feel like you are someone that they could make a movie around because they have this movie with the uh, the um, blind side, if you mm-hmm. if you know that movie. And it's just uh this wonderful human being that just has this super big heart and is there and is there for the good times and the tough times and sort of realizes what it's like. And uh, I just feel like, you know, it's cool to meet people in real life and have them share their stories because it's not just about the stuff you see on the Hollywood screens, but this is real, real people in real mm-hmm. life and, and they're doing real things to help their communities and their people. And 
I just think it's beautiful. Let me ask you this question because we ask everyone this question is, how do you think as a society we can move closer to a culture of belonging and respect? Um, it's a fantastic, wonderful question. Um, you know, I spend a lot of time professionally, you know, working with people to move towards that. So I think there's two things. How do I think we can do it and how do we do it? I don't know that those two things are actually the same thing because how do we do it? I mean, it's really easier than we make it is one, um, develop a sense of curiosity, just develop a sense of curiosity. Like you can put a period after that, because if you're curious about other people, if you're curious about food, if you're curious about um, traveling, if you're curious about this, you start really broadening what the world looks like. And as soon as you see the world doesn't look exactly like the small little piece you've created around yourself every day that tends to look a lot like you. And I don't mean just look like you, think like you, feel like you, eat like you do, you know, um, everything about you, then that starts to change things dramatically because you realize everyone's experience is not your own. So the first thing I would, you know, would say is that, you know, how I, I think we do it is start to get really curious. And one thing I really practice and I, I teach other people to practice is that um, in being curious, when someone's talking, before you respond, this is a facilitator thing, what are they saying and why are they saying it? And notice that's all about the other person. It's not about you. It's not about your reaction. It's not about what you're just dying to get in there before they say it. That's a curiosity. What? And it goes back to what we were saying earlier in the conversation too, right? And so like, what is that now? How do I think we do it? That's, I mean, or how are we going to do it? That's, that's a little bit different and harder because I think we're in a place of extreme division, certainly in our country, in the United States. I think I see it more broadly in the world. I don't know how, how much or if it is as bad as what in Canada is what, you, what we see here. But what I think we need to do is for those of us who see this, we have to keep practicing it with intention and we have to keep um, bringing other people along with us. So it just becomes kind of a snowball that keeps going because there's that's, it's not an easy answer. And so let me give you an example of what I mean by that. On the Equity Council, for example, on our webpage, not our webpage, but our Facebook page, you know, occasionally someone will jump on with very unproductive comments. And because we're a smaller community, I know a lot of the people on the page, not everyone. But what I will do, whether I know you or not, if I know you, we've probably had a conversation on it. If people start going back at that person with the same behavior, even if you're on the right side of things in terms of equity, if you're modeling the same behavior back, then you are contributing to this inequity and this division in society. And so what I constantly coach people to do is, is what you're going to say harm or hurt? Is it going to harm or hurt? And so I said, here's how we approach this. We either, if it's just really, truly, you know, there's a racial slur, something we're going to delete it, we're going to ban the user, you're not going to address it. Otherwise, usually what we just say is, hey, thanks, thanks for questioning here. We have a set of common agreements. 
I want to make sure that you're aligned with these agreements. I can't tell from your comment, you know, if you are, let's continue to have a conversation. And so, and so the, the point is, is that these are people who are there in terms of having an equitable worldview. But if you're not there in terms of being able to communicate that worldview in a way that is going to achieve the objectives that you want everybody to move there with you, then then you're harming. You're harming, even though you don't think you're harming because you believe the right thing. I'm not even sure I'm still on the question anymore because I got so, <laughs> I got so well, excited. <laughs> well, that's usually what happens when you have a passion for the work that you do, right? Is that you have your um, values, your opinions, your lived experience, and you sort of bottle it all up into one and you bring forth it uh, in, in conversation. And, and that's really discourse, right? It's like there is no right or wrong or yes or no. It's it's creating spaces. And I love the fact that you talked about taking that second and just saying, okay, where is this coming from? And then determining what the next path forward is. I think a lot of us, we listen to respond versus listen to hear process and then respond right accordingly and i think that um you sharing that just allows us to create more of the inclusion and unity that we need to see versus the division which a is very apparent in the united states right now and you know we're starting to have some significant issues and there's some studies that have come out here in canada as well and i think globally there are some challenges as well and i you know I'm well-traveled. I believe uh, we've talked that you're well-traveled. And some of those actionable steps that you talked about around curiosity really make a difference because what you know is not the world around you. It's just your world, Mm -hmm. right? The world around you can be very different. It's about opening up your mind and opening up your heart and being genuinely curious about the people and the things around you. And that's Really what we're trying to bring with this show is providing that different perspective, increasing and broadening people's lines on cultural competencies and where other people are coming from. You would have never had the experience had you not adopted two mixed race children. Mm -hmm. But because of that, you've now opened and broadened your own personal lens on diversity, equity and inclusion which is a beautiful thing. Where can people find you? Because I know that people are going to want to have a conversation. Where do people find you? Where Where do you hang out on social media? Yeah. So on social media, um, I am on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Um, on Facebook and Instagram, it's MFR Coach Consult. On Instagram, there is one under the business name, but I primarily post from my personal, Melanie Ryan account. And then on web, uh, mfrcoachconsult.com. And I'd love to see, I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to connect with you. Um, I love people. I love people. That's beautiful. And folks, I, I definitely encourage you to reach out. She is such a kind human being, uh, really just honest and genuine and, and willing to help. And I think that, you know, when it comes to this conversation around diversity, equity, inclusion, it's having the right heart and doing it for the right reasons that really helps to move the needle. And then having the competence, obviously, to to help people get to where they need to go. And that's something you have. So there you have it, folks. The truth according to Melanie Ryan. Thank you so much for being here, Melanie. Thank you. I loved it. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. Our show is sponsored by Discourse. We build belonging into the DNA of DEI. 
You can visit us on the web at discourseagency.com or check out our YouTube channel, Discourse Agency. Make sure you hit that subscribe button, leave a review, drop a comment, and most importantly, share it with a fellow human. Thank you so much for your support. And remember, your truth is your experience. Bye for now.